We've been going through um, Genesis. Last week we talked about the flood and just a real quick summary. The Lord brought all the creatures unto Noah and Noah took them in the ark. Two of each kind, seven of each clean kind, and seven of the birds. All flesh perished on the earth, save Noah and his family with all the creatures that were on the ark. Everything that had breath perished that was not on the ark. And after 371 days, over a year, Noah brings everyone out, all the animals and all the birds and all the things that crawl around on the earth. And it was a picture of Noah's obedience and uh, how he obeyed the Lord for 120 years, built that ark, despite the scoffers and the mockers that were uh, going by just about every day. Tonight we're going to try and get up to um, Genesis 9.17, but we're starting out in 8.20. And I'm just going to go ahead and read through those three verses. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imaginations of the man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And uh, he will not send water again, not in a flood like that. So Noah offers burnt offering to the Lord. Uh, seven pair of clean, and the birds, seven pair of birds, and one pair of unclean. Why seven clean is the question. And you know, we'll see he made that sacrifice, but what is clean? What is unclean? What does that mean? Uh, at this point, there is no eating of animals, uh, as far as we know. I, the first thing that crossed my mind is, then why was Abel keeping a flock? Was it only to offer sacrifice? Or, you know, I don't know. But there's a little question there. It's may, maybe it's possible that they were already eating. Um, but uh, it seems to indicate the Lord in, verse, in chapter 9, we'll see um, he doesn't command them to eat meat until after the flood or give that to them for their food. Um, so at this point, there's no eating as far as we know. The word clean basically means pure, but it has the meaning of ceremonially pure pure and clean, but with the idea that it's not anything that would defile, uh, it's not, any, and it would be suitable for a sacrifice. If there were any other meaning for clean, it would have to be from that first mention when Abel made his sacrifice, and the Lord accepted his, but did not accept Cain's, um, and that was a, an animal sacrifice. He sacrificed the firstborn of his flock of sheep. So clean, then, basically is what is acceptable to God. And everyone would have known from that first time that uh, Cain and Abel um, offered, they would have known. That would have been passed on down um, from uh, first mention of those sacrifices of Cain and Abel. We saw the overlap of their lives, how for many hundreds of years they were able to pass down the exact account of what they saw take place in uh, the garden. And then... Um, what they all saw in, in, uh, from Cain and Abel and their stories that they were passed down. 
But Abel was, Abel's was in faith and with the slaughter and the bloodshed of the firstborn of his flock of sheep. So clean then is that which is acceptable to God. But the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, including Genesis, were written by Moses and under, under the inspiration and the direction of the Holy Spirit. So this would eventually fit with the Mosaic law for what is clean and unclean to eat and to sacrifice uh, to the Lord, and that is in Leviticus 11 is where it begins to be laid out, and specifically for Israel. And God also made a distinction that this would be a sign for Israel among the nations. Everybody else could have bacon. Israel could not, and everybody knew it. And uh, it was a sign for the nations around that Israel was special to the Lord. He made this distinction, his chosen people, his special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth, a holy people to the Lord, and that's in Deuteronomy 14. But for now, in Genesis 9-2, God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Uh, and we'll get to that. But this is not really just about permissible food, because um, all things are clean for us, right? You know, from the New Testament. Um, for those that do so in faith. And God does not look on the outward actions necessarily of this sacrifice. He looks at the attitude of our hearts, really. And, um, and he saw Noah's sacrifice as something that was pleasing and soothing. And I don't think it, uh, we'll get to that too a little bit, but what's in, what, what has to be said is the only acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God for our sin is, was accomplished on the cross by the blood of Jesus Christ. God's own Son, God's perfect and spotless Lamb, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And um, that is the only acceptable sacrifice that you and I can make, is through Him. And by His grace and His mercy and His love for us, we are acceptable in Him, in Jesus Christ. But we still make sacrifices, don't we, um, as believers, but it's not for our sins, and that has to be clear because so oftentimes we might fall, we might slip, we might do something we know we shouldn't do, and we want to come back to the Lord, and we get this feeling like, well, we have to make some kind of sacrifice. No, you just have to turn to the Lord. He made that sacrifice. It's those that they talk about in the New Testament that refuse Jesus, and then there's no sacrifice left for them because they once knew they fell away, and they turned from him. It's not that they fell away into sin. It's they fell away from who Jesus Christ was. And then there's no more, there's no more sacrifice because he's not, you know, they don't put him up as that sacrifice before the Father. They're seeking to put their own works up. But we are clean. Let's look at Titus 2. There's about four quick passages we're going to go through because this is really important to understand that nothing is acceptable to the Lord except um, for our sins, except what Jesus did on the cross. But we still make sacrifices. And so Titus two, eleven through 14, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed 
and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And so, you know, we're clean. He purifies us, but it says that teaches us something. It teaches us that that, uh, we look to him. It teaches us to lay aside those things. It teaches us to just live like it. We've been washed. Let's live like it. Again, it's not a sacrifice that saves us. It's a sacrifice unto the Lord because we love him. Next one is 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, or the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, well, we're just plain liars. And his word is not in us. It says, you know, he cleanses us. And if this is true, then we walk like it, uh, it, it and practice it. And if we confess our fails, he washes us and cleanses us. One more or two more. Ephesians 5. Go back a few. Really, these verses I want to give you so that you see them, just so you know, it's, it's not what we do that is going to save us from our sins. He only, he's the only acceptable sacrifice. I guess I'm trying to drive that home because it's so tempting for us to try and offer up something for our sins that we cannot do, but we can live like it because we have been washed and cleaned. In uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We heard that about Noah's sacrifice. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. It's fitting. We just want to do what's fitting. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and in God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, because he loves us. Uncleanness just isn't fitting for the believer. We've been washed. Is it, you know, going to Romans 12, is it really too much to ask for, for our, all that he has done for us? We have eternal life. Is it really too much for, for him to ask for us to just simply live like it? And, um, and this one lays it out a little bit. Um, Romans 12, 1 through 8. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's not your salvation. It's your reasonable response to the Lord. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
For I say through the grace given to me and everyone who is among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy the proportion of our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches and teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. That's funny. I can't imagine showing mercy without being cheerful about it, setting somebody free from uh, whatever it is you're showing him mercy for. That's an awesome thing. But what is reasonable? What is acceptable? He says we are members of each other and we have gifts. You know, ask God what he gave you the ability to do. Just ask him if you're not sure what your gift is. Um, you know, it's for your brothers and sisters first and, uh, you know, your family as well and, and all. But everybody has gifts and individual abilities. Um, what's really more important than your ability is your availability whether or not you're willing or not. You know, everyone has gifts. You know, we don't even have to think beyond our abilities. Just start doing what you know you're able to do. There's always stuff to do um, for your brothers and sisters. I mean, it blesses my heart. I, I remember uh, 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 there's a young man who's probably not even a teenager yet would always stand by the front doors and be holding the doors for people when they came in. Just simplest thing like that. Jesus said to the, to the giving of a glass of water, in Jesus' name, you know. And so the simplest thing that you have the abilities to do, whatever that may be, and, um, and this isn't some big promotion for next Saturday's work day, but, you know, if it fits, then, hey, it fits. Um, we do not have to think beyond our own abilities, but you know what? If you just make yourself available, you'd be surprised what God will do f- through you. It's like 1 Corinthians 12, the spiritual gifts goes through that. God desires a fellowship of believers that ministers to one another. He, he said the world would even know that we're believers, that we know him actually, if by the love we have for one another. That's the first thing that the world would see and should see. And, um, but we think of sacrifices in the Bible just as burnt offerings. But sacrifice means giving up something that you would otherwise need or depend on. Um, something you would have to use for yourself uh, or keep for your own purposes, not something you just put in a rummage sale anyway because you're done using it. You know, not like when you have a rummage sale or give away your leftovers. You know, you're done with it anyway. Who cares? You know, you don't even care what happens to it. It's only a sacrifice if we give to God from our needed supply, you know, so that we acknowledge our dependence on Him. He gives us all things anyway. Um, and so that's the sacrifice that we're, again, talking about it. Just to reiterate, it can be a real big guilt trip if you take it the wrong way. It's not meant to be a guilt trip. You're saved. You are saved. You have eternity before you in the things that uh, he has done for us on the cross. This is just our reasonable service, just what he's given us to do, just in, within your abilities and your willingness um, God loves a cheerful giver, and that has to do with maybe with money, but it has to do with our time. It has to do with anything, the things we do for one another and 
and um, things we try to do, showing his love to the world. Um, like the widow gave her two mites. That was all she had was about, you know, a couple of pennies to rub together. And Jesus said, well, the rich guy gave a ton more money than she did, but it was just a fraction of his margin. He didn't give anything that cost him anything except that, uh, you know, it was just a bit of what he had left over. Um, what was so soothing to God about Noah's birth, burnt offering? It really wasn't about the burning of an animal or the smoke, but Noah believed God. Remember, we made that list of all the things we learned about Noah. He was holy. Uh, he believed that God was holy, I should say. He was just. He was righteous. Um, he also provided, you know, the Lord that the God that Noah believed in had provided for Adam and Eve skin. He knew that. He had provided uh, for Abel, and he knew that. And he had known Enoch and seen him walk with God. Noah, it said of Noah that he walked with God. Now, truth is, the soul that sins will die, and all sinned who were born to Adam and Eve. But it says Noah found favor in the eyes of God, God who accepted that offering for Abel and sacrifice uh, that life and the blood of that firstborn of his flock. And Noah approached God as a sinner, aware that he needed a sacrifice for his sin. Even though men's hearts are evil from their youth, there would be an offering to be made, as he says, a sacrifice to God from men that know that he is their creator and the Lord of all, offered in faith, just like Abel. And from the foundation of the world, a sacrificial lamb was already prepared that would justify us, sinful man, and wash away all the sins of mankind with his own blood. You know, how did this move on God's heart back in Genesis? It says, never again while the earth remains, as long as there's an earth and a winter and a summer, hot and cold, day and night, we're going to talk about the covenants in a little bit, but turn to Jeremiah 31. There's uh, one passage that came to mind as soon as I, I read that, you know, where never again would the Lord flood the earth as long as there's an earth, as long as there's winter, as long as the sun comes up and the moon comes up, and as long as there's day and night, as long as the earth remains. Reminded me of another time where the Lord says that. And like I say, we're going to talk about the covenants that God makes. But 31, 31 through 37 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, while well, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin and remember them no more. He's talking about Israel here. Look at this. He says, Thus says the Lord, 
who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars and the light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And if those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. For thus says the Lord, if heaven can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Isn't that amazing, his faithfulness? You know, people want to, want to say, well, the church replaced Israel and all the blessings and everything said about Israel, prophecies, and the church has now inherited those and there is no more Israel. It's called preterism, it's called replacement theology, and I know we've talked about it before, but you know what? You're poking God in the eye when you say that because what does he say? Even for all that they have done, he's not talking about the church. He's talking about Israel. As long as a son comes up and the, and the ordinances of nighttime, he says, this, the moon and the stars, you know, all that he created and set in place. And you know what? The moon is still coming up tonight and the sun just went down a little while ago and it's going to, you know, Lord tarries, it's going to come up tomorrow. But, um, you know, so how did this move God's heart when Noah made this? How does it move, move God's heart when uh, he looks at his nation of Israel? You know, he loves that land. He gave it to them. And uh, to this day, here we are looking. And we'll look into this a little bit when we talk about the covenants. But going back to Genesis, starting chapter 9, I'm going to just go ahead and read up to um, 17, and we'll come back. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and all the move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. Well, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its blood, that is, uh, or with its life, that is, its blood. Surely your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. Let me back up. Surely for your lifeblood, I'll demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of a man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. By man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be faithful, be fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. 
And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 1, be fruitful and multiply. Um, Answers in Genesis again, Dr. Nathan, or is it Nathaniel? Nathan Jensen. If you're not familiar with Answers in Genesis, uh, they have the ark down in Kentucky. And uh, Ken Ham is the uh, head of that ministry. But this uh, Dr. Jensen is a... uh, earned bachelor degree and with DNA uh, and all. And so he actually did this, and it's, if you want to look it up, it's called The New History of the Human Race. If you want to jot that down, just type that in and maybe type in Jensen. It's J-E-A-N-S-E-N. And, uh, but the X, X chromosome is always passed down through the ladies to their daughters, and the Y chromosome is always passed down uh, from the fathers to their sons. You know, there's other things in the mix, but the Y on the one side and the X on the other side, well, he takes that back. And um, again, he's going to do a much better job of explaining this to you. And I think we talked about it a few weeks back or months back. But um, it goes back and works out that as you go back far in time, it's not like we have our parents and they have the grandparents and then this continues to be a big thing. Eventually it goes back to where people knew each other prior to that. And so we maybe have ancestors that go way back that, you know, we would think of uh, not intermarriage, but that they knew each other and that's where, where we came from. But it fits that as he charts this back, and he'll do a much better job, so please go check him out, that between four and 5,000 years ago, it was down to probably just a dozen or less people. And, and this is genetically looking at how it goes down through time. And... Um, you know, he, he works that all out. I'll let you go check it out. Either way, I can say confidently that there were eight people about 4,400 years ago because the Bible says so. That's all I need. And it's just no surprise to me that science, you know, fits, or at least honest science fits that. You know, the flood occurred approximately 4,400 years ago. Noah and his family were fruitful. They did multiply, and here we are today. Verse 2, the terror of you will be on the animals. I'm always blessed when I see those guys that can, can, you know, they put those little feeders on their, like a ring or something. I don't know what it is, but they can get these hummingbirds. If you ever go on YouTube and look up hummingbirds, you know, we like watching the birds. And, you know, we got a couple cardinals out back and everybody's got robins and stuff around here. But you see these guys that literally tame hummingbirds, the most skittish thing I can possibly think of. That won't come around anything. And uh, as soon as you walk out the door, everything flees. Well, that's what's happening. That's what happened here. Certainly man can tame. And he said, I give them into your hands. Most, just about any animal is tamed. If you feed it, you stop feeding it, it's going to eat you, most of them. But, uh, you know, people do tame animals. And uh, so you see that a lot. But they, the wild is skittish. And there's a terror of you on these animals. And, um, you know, I, I just, uh, it takes time. 
to train. You know, even your dog, it's going to take six months or six weeks to get him to do what you want him to do. Um, but um, in the wild, left alone, the terror of mankind is on them. If you want to turn to Romans 8, and we're going to be back to Romans three or four more times, so maybe just stick your your bulletin there or something, and, and so it's easier to flip back later. But just Romans 8, verses 18 through 23, there is going to come a day when there will no longer be that terror. And there's coming a day when all of creation is going to be what it was supposed to be. And in the meantime, we'll see here, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, well, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly, waiting for the adoption the redemption of our bodies. The context of this is, you know, being children of God, knowing how to pray in the Spirit himself, bearing witness in us, teaching us how to pray, and us walking in that. But he talks about even creation, even that terror that's on the wildlife, even just all of the thistles and weeds and all that. It's under a, it's under a uh, suppression. It's under, it groans. You know, it's labors and it has birth pangs. Till now, um, it takes um, you know God's creatures created for His own good pleasure, um, given to man to subdue, given into our hand. But along with all creation, they're under that curse, and they're corrupt until Jesus comes for us and we're glorified. Verse three, back in Genesis. Chapter 9, verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I have given you all the things, even as the green herbs. And the green herbs refers back to Genesis chapter 1, where he says, I've given you all these things for food, but now flesh for food or meat has been instated for food or instituted. Um, Again, I'm surprised. I, I don't know why Abel was keeping sheep. But it seems to me, based on this, that until this time, they were only eating the herbs and, and the vegetables. I wouldn't build some big church around it. You know, um, We know that all things are clean. We know that when Peter was being sent to the Gentiles, and the Lord set down a sheet in front of him in a vision, full of all kinds of unclean foods, and says, Peter, rise up and eat. No way, Lord. Which is, how do you do that? No and Lord in the same sentence? It doesn't make sense. Um, but uh, the Lord was showing him that, yes, you're going to the Gentiles, even those bacon eaters, Peter. You've got to go talk to those guys. And they, there's Cornelius. He's wanting somebody 
to come talk to him and give him the gospel. And so we know, and Paul you know, confronted Peter at one time because Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles and he was just him and Paul was there and some of the others that were with Paul and he was having fellowship and having the potluck afterwards and eating whatever they laid out. Well, a few of the Jews came and all of a sudden Peter withdraws and says, no, I, I, the Jews are here now. I can't have any more of that food. And Paul, re, you know, confronted him on it. And so we know that all things are clean. And the Bible talks about it being if you can do it in faith. And... Um, so that's, uh, and it goes on, that's in Corinthians, to, to say if you're going to do it in faith, that's fine. Just don't stumble your brother who maybe has weaker faith. You know, maybe he's not somebody who, who wants to eat a lot of bacon or wants to eat, you know, pork chops. And, and so don't invite him over for pork chops if you know he doesn't like pork chops. Um, but, uh, you know, we saw how, how um, you know, God had accepted Abel's, sacrifice, accepted Noah's sacrifice, how God has established um, to be fruitful, multiply. But now we get into Genesis 9, verses 4 through 7. Um, you know, he says, eat the flesh with its life, but or um, do not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. The life is in the blood is an interesting Bible study because, you know, it is. You've got how many quarts, you know, five, six quarts of blood. Maybe somebody in medical business knows what that is, but you can only lose so much and there's nothing left. And um, so uh, the life, our life, is in the blood. It takes the oxygen from our lungs, goes throughout the body. Um, Verses 4 through 7, just reading through it, you know, whoever, uh, surely your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast, I will require it. So if, some, if a beast, you know, takes you out, somehow a wild animal kills you, the Lord's going to require your blood from that beast, it says. And from the hand of a man, in other words, if a man takes your life, the Lord's going to require your blood from that man. From the hand of every man's brother, I'll require that blood. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Well, he was made in the image of God. Now, you know, God made us, and he made us in his own image. There is a difference between us and animals. And no matter how much lipstick they want to put on an ape, it's not going to look like a human being. There's a difference. And so you... You can take, um, turn to Exodus 20. Remember how God had convicted Cain for his brother's blood, saying, his, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. He cursed the ground, which had opened its mouth to receive Abel's blood for Cain. Cain couldn't get a thing to grow after that. Um, the penalty for Cain was death. The Lord says, you know, you cannot get anything out of the ground. Well, Cain says, the first guy that kills me, or the first guy that sees me is going to kill me. And because he pleaded to the Lord, the Lord said, okay, therefore, because of that, I will put a mark on you. So whoever tries to kill you knows better. Um, but God makes the sanctity of life perfectly clear by telling Cain, you killed your brother. There's a price to pay. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 13 says, well, first of all, let's look at the 
where we're at. You guys know this one? It's the Ten Commandments, right? Um, verse 13, you shall not murder. Short verse. Well, these are the ten suggestions or the ten recommendations or maybe the ten, you know, guidelines for our life. No, these are the Ten Commandments. If you kill, God requires that blood from you, according to, to um, Genesis 9. We're used to defaulting in our, our own hearts and minds to the norms of society. We don't want to make waves. We don't want to stir any pot. We don't want to draw unnecessary attention to ourselves. We don't want to rock the boat. But these are God's commands. They're not suggestions. And when we walk in these, when we obey these, People get uncomfortable around us. And yet, um, we're not worried about what people think. Um, you know, we talked about uh, Noah's obedience. You know, look at uh, the next page, uh, Exodus 21, verses uh, 12 through 32. First of all, it's in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. But then in the law concerning violence, starting in verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death, period. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where you may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or he found, is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. But we're talking about the sanctity of life. Um, and he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. But he shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. Um, and if a man uh, beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive for a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished. Accordingly, as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for a life. An unborn life is lost, and you take the man's life who caused it to happen. What a world we live in today. Now, there's more to that. I'm not saying we should go out and start doing... I know this, it occurred to me just now how this sounds... <laughs> We're not going to bomb anything. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's uh, heart towards the sanctity of life. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for a foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, let him go free for the sake of his tooth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, and the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But he's certainly going to take a loss. Imagine that. You know, the, he's going to lose that ox and everything. Couldn't keep it. Notice how it says, if the ox tended to thrust its horn in times past, 
It's been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it was killed, so that it has killed a man or a woman. The ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Whether it is, has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Um, maybe these days it's not an ox. Maybe it's a Rottweiler, a pit bull, or, or any other dog. doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be one of those. If the owner isn't training and confining, the owner's responsible. You know, and uh, we might look at it that way. But again, the point of this is to show that God has a serious consequence for those who take a life and the sanctity of life. There's more in Numbers 35, if you want to keep going that way. Why, why was it so important to the Lord? You know, we obviously know it. I mean, these days, I mean, they're, the types of things that they're trying to do, the, the lives that are being taken for no reason, um, the bloodthirstiness of the world is starting to look an awful lot like the days before Noah where violence filled the earth. Um, but there is, there is also a system. There is also a, if you will, a court system. And uh, there were those that were the uh, guys who were assigned this task of chasing down the guy who murdered somebody and making sure that this was fulfilled, that he, his, he was taking his life. Um, but then there were those that there might have been a reason, a mistake. It might have been something that wasn't intentional. Remember, we read about it, the guy that didn't realize it, and it happened anyway. It was an accident. Well, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be, they, they shall be cities of refuge for you, from the avenger, the guy who's going to avenge that death, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three on this side of the Jordan, and three you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be known for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, for the sojourner among them, and anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he strikes him with a stone, that is hand, which he could die. He does not die. He is a murderer. Um, and he does die. He is a murderer. The murderer shall be surely be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be surely put to death. The avenger of the blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait, hurls something at him so that he dies, or in enmity he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood should put the murderer to death when he meets him. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity or throws anything uh, at him without lying in wait, 
or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies, while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger, and so on, so on, down to 32. But the idea, or 34, I should say, but the idea, this, you know, hopefully this helps more than anything um, that we understand the sanctity of life, of human life before God. And it also helps us to understand the price that was paid on the cross. You know, the, the blood that was shed, the life that was taken in our place for us who should have been taken out because of our sin. Going back to Genesis chapter 9, you know, the Lord basically says, the life is in the blood. If you shed blood, it cries out to me. And he says it's because we are made in the image of God. But verses 8 through 17, God establishes a covenant with Noah and with all flesh on the earth. Um, it's the first time the word covenant is mentioned in the Bible. Um, there are three kinds of covenants. Uh, one is the, in the scriptures, I should say, you know, I'm sure there's these days all manner of legal type stuff with plenty of lawyers to figure that out. But in the scriptures, there's three kinds. One is unconditional. Unconditional simply means it's granted by God. It's a sovereign act of God who obligates himself to bring to pass whatever promises, whatever blessings, conditions are there for the people he has a covenant with. An example would be the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, that's David, um, and the land of Israel covenant. There's a covenant God made for the land, for Israel. Um, those are some examples. The conditional is another kind. The first one is unconditional. second one is conditional. This is where an inferior enters a covenant with a superior. In other words, uh, they have different words for it. Um, but the person who is, has the authority, the person who is in power, and uh, somebody who is in his subject, um, under subjection to him, enters a covenant. And that's called conditional. Uh, and so this uh, inferior or, you know, will swear to keep this covenant. And it's binding only to him and uh, will be rewarded if whatever deal they've made, uh, or, you know, punished based on whether or not they keep their side of it. The other guy is just the, you know, I, the way I thought about it is getting a loan from the bank. You know, it's not that the bank's superior to me, but the bank's got more money, so I borrow some of their money, and uh, if I don't keep my end of the deal and pay it back on time, well, they then will punish me with interest and with, uh, you know, who knows, take the, take the car, take the house, or something like that that type of thing where the bank is not entering into anything except they're putting up their money. And, but we are entering into it with the obligation to pay it back. That is an example maybe of a conditional covenant. Uh, in the scriptures, um, the Mosaic covenant, the entire book of Deuteronomy, it's conditional on those who kept and vowed Israel. There's a couple more in the Bible, um, Chedorlaomer in Genesis 14, Jabesh Gilead in 1 Samuel 11. If you want to look those up, um, these are examples of a conditional uh, where they made deals with the kings, 
and uh, they had to keep that deal, or the king would take his his uh, take it back. The third one is called uh, parity or equal covenant. Basically, this is something that probably happened between me and you, something where we shake hands on a deal. You do this for me, and I'll do that for you. Um, basically, each side in the relationship must keep the stipulations that they each agreed upon. Example in scriptures, Abraham and Abimelech. If you remember when Abraham uh, was traveling with Sarah and he was telling everybody he was his sister, she was his sister. Well, Abimelech says, well, she's kind of cute. I think I want to take her for my wife. And all of a sudden this blows up in Abraham's face. Well, they made that, that was a, this for that. Abraham had to come up with a better deal. Jacob and Laban, if you remember for for his wives, Leah and Rachel, Jacob made a deal with Laban, served him seven years, and ended up getting schnookered and had to work another seven years to get Rachel, whom he loved. Um, David and Jonathan. Um, so these are covenants that are found in the Bible. Uh, there's a number of them. One that he made with Adam, and called the Edenic, or this the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, God established his rule and his relationship to mankind, Gave Adam and Eve one responsibility. They got one job. Don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Um, They had the responsibility. Um, Another one was Adam um, after the fall. That one's called the Adamic or Adamic after the fall. God established the curse on Adam and Eve and on the creation, like we talked about in Romans 8, that will be removed primarily during the millennium and entirely Eliminated for eternity. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians, just a little shedding of light on that. Way to the back. It's raining outside anyways. We don't want to go home. 1 Corinthians 15, just a few verses, 50 through 58. The fact that flesh has been... uh, Let's just read it. Now... This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is uh, not in vain in the Lord. You know, that, that promise, you know, he made that covenant with Adam after the fall and cursed everything. But there's coming that time, we talked about it in Romans, that, that the curse will be gone and will be taken to be with the Lord. And all that groaning will be over with. Then there's the Noah, Noah Hick, you know, Noah, Noahic, um, the covenant he made with Noah. God restates his authority over man as he did with Adam along with being fruitful and multiply but then he adds man's enmity with wildlife we talked about that he adds you can eat meat but don't eat it with the blood 
And he adds the sanctity of human life, and he adds capital punishment in his covenant with Noah. This covenant between God and all humanity and wildlife, he promises to never again. What's God's side of it? He's never again going to destroy the earth with water. And he sets a rainbow for a sign. But when we were reading through that, did you notice who the sign was for? It was a reminder for us. It was a reminder for him when he looks at it. You know, that he will see. It says, when I see it, when I remember it, my covenant. Interesting, uh, the verses about his throne room. Um, I'm going to just read them quick. You don't have to go there. Ezekiel, if you want, go for it. Uh, but Ezekiel um, 1, 26 and through 28, when God sees the rainbow, but he's describing... Ezekiel's describing when he was taken to heaven in those, uh, those four, cre- or the creatures, that, the cherubim that had the four faces and all, but down to 26, he's in the throne room, and he says, above the firmament, over all these guys' heads, was the likeness of a throne in appearance, like a sapphire stone, and on the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Here's God on his throne that Ezekiel's trying to describe Also from the appearance of his waist upward, I saw as it were the color of amber and the appearance of fire all around and within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw that there was the appearance of fire and brightness all around. 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He has a rainbow before him in his kingdom, in his throne room, Same in Revelation 4, and I'll just read it. Just verse 3 um, says, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. You know, the only rainbow is not mentioned a lot of times in the Bible, but uh, it's interesting that it is around God. It's the thing that he sees, the thing that he remembers his covenant by, I just found that interesting. One you can turn to is Isaiah 54, uh, verses 1 through 10. God makes a covenant with Noah, and he remembers that covenant. Down through the kings, down through Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, down through Israel, down through the kings, all the way into the prophets. It says, Sing, O barren, you who have not borne, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. You will not forget the shame, or and you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. 
With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is, the waters of, this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer come on the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be moved. My kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Speaking of Israel, speaking of Israel as his wife, you know, we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride. And when we go to be with him, that's the wedding feast. So we're still the bride. We're still engaged. And, uh, but the Lord had a wife. And uh, in fact, you can read Hosea, and you'll, the, he gives the account. And Hosea has to, to uh, uh, take wives to represent the Lord's relationship with Israel and all. But uh, the bottom line is, here he's talking about the, the, the covenant that he made with Noah. And again, with Israel, like we talked about in Jeremiah, um, the Abrahamic covenant is uh, for the land of Israel. It's also for the seed, including, you know, seed as descendants, also including in that the Messiah. And also with the Abrahamic covenant, there's a worldwide blessing. It says those who bless will be blessed. Those who bless Abraham will be blessed. There's also in the Abrahamic covenant, um, more than a dozen provisions, some apply to Abraham, some apply to Isaac, some to the seed, but some to the Gentiles, many to the Gentiles. Mosaic covenant, established exclusively with Israel, was fulfilled through the ministry of Jesus Christ. It says in Matthew 7, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Then there's the Davidic covenant with David. It was his posterity, you know, the throne and authority, the kingdom on earth. And it was fulfilled in David's line when uh, Jesus, the king of the Jews, rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father for all eternity. And we're kind of running out of time, but that's Luke chapter 1, 31 and through 33. The land of Israel covenant. God made a covenant with the land. And uh, that's why it's important to this day, why we're looking over there on that eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea of what's going on. We touched upon it earlier in Jeremiah 31, 31. It's for Israel, and it's also applied to the church. Um, Jesus said, this is my blood uh, in the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins in Matthew 26 and uh, Luke 22 and John 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6, Paul and the apostles we're ministers of the new covenant, he says. But all these, we've got to go to Romans 9 again. you got your finger there. A couple more verses. Um, all of these covenants, all of them, belong to Israel. There was never any covenant made with the church. Um, look at Romans 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. It says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and a uh, continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. 
of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternal blessed God, eternally blessed God, amen. You know, all the covenants that were made were made with the nation of Israel. Um, You know, now we believe in in Christ. Uh, He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the seed of Abraham, the covenants that were made with Abraham. He's the fulfiller of the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. He's the one who sits on the throne of David, the Davidic law, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. But we received our forgiveness of sins through faith in him. We are adopted into his family, it says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and receive all the benefits of salvation of that adoption. And Paul says in Romans, as you read through those three chapters, you know, don't be haughty as a Gentile or even a, uh, you know, that you were grafted in. You're just a branch that was grafted in. The root is Israel. And uh, the root is, can much, much more easily be restored than the um, grafted in one could be. And so that's what he's saying. Don't be haughty towards Israel about that. Um, Jesus said, all scriptures speak of me and the covenants are fulfilled in him. And some are for Israel and the land. And that's what we're watching unfold right now. Um, Some are yet for the millennium and some are for eternity. But the point is, if God is not going to be faithful to Israel, why should he be faithful to me? If he's not going to be faithful, no matter all the things that they did and how they rejected him and just went after other gods, you know, uh, we make our mistakes. We're rebellious from time to time, we can go into a season in our lives. And, um, you know, he's faithful to draw us back. He's faithful as a good shepherd to go after that one from the 99 and um, to, uh, to bring it back to himself. Aren't you grateful, you know, for all of his covenants? Um, all these were made for a provision for salvation And all these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, whom we've believed and who we put our trust in. If you go back one page to Romans 8, just the first four verses, there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Ties together with everything we've kind of been studying tonight. Um, Next week is going to be interesting. Just the table of nations and Tower of Babel and things like that. But um, praise the Lord that he has accomplished all these covenants. Um, And praise the Lord that he's faithful to us. So teach him through the word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Sometimes it's just a labor, and we learn what we can. And uh, may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for that, for your faithfulness to us. And again, nothing good happens to which you don't get the glory for and the honor and the praise. And so we continue to ask that you be working our lives to make us more like you 
and make us ministers of your love to a lost world and to uh, those that you bring across our paths, those that you bring into our lives. And we just lift that up to you and know it's going to be all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.